Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. We've got something a little bit different for you today. Um, today's show is a law school admissions Q&A session with law school expert Anne Levine. Um, this was recorded in one of my LSAT classes in San Francisco. The class asked tons of really great questions about personal statements, letters of recommendation, addendums, uh, really just all sorts of awesome application questions that people need to know about. I learned a lot. I hope you will too. Thanks for listening. You all know who Anne Levine is. She's the author of The Law School Admission Game, which you all have, and all of you have told me is incredibly helpful. Uh, she's the law school expert, and I'm gonna let her really introduce herself, and then I think this is gonna be mostly just a Q&A about law school admissions. Hope you got lots of questions lined up. Take it away. Thank you, thanks for inviting me. I love to get away and come into the city for a little bit, so this is fun for me, and I love to speak to LSAT students, and um, just a couple remarks to start. One is that <laughs> um, I've never before been to an LSAT class where I was handed a glass of wine before I speak, so this should be interesting. Um, the second is um, one thing that's great about Nathan and that I think is very similar to our approaches when we're working with all of you is um, this sort of no bullshit, don't make it more complicated than it is approach. And uh, I'm very much the same. And so usually in a class like this, I would have a very definite program. Okay, let's talk about the personal statement, the resume, the diversity statement, picking schools list. And I take you through. But most of you, I understand, are like eight days from the LSAT. And what I don't want is for you to leave here more stressed about all the things you have to do. Because really, a lot of that stuff I don't even want you thinking about until the, let's even give you a day vacation, the 29th, okay? Um, I usually walk around a lot, but we're trying to record this for posterity, So, and I started it by bullshit, so you got me. Um, so a quick introduction to, to me. I, I see some of you even brought your homework. I'm sure you wanted my autograph with the book, but no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so um, law school stuff, how did this happen for me? Um, Obviously, I went to law school. I got very involved in law school administration as a student um, through the activities that I chose to do. And I actually considered getting a PhD in higher education after law school because my passion undergraduate that came out very clearly in undergraduate and law school was really related to higher education policy. So I actually did not do that, and instead, upon graduating from law school, I went to work for law schools. Um, I started as a, like, what was the director of student services or something at uh, the University of Denver College of Law. And then at the age of 26, which I promise you was a really long time ago, I became director of admissions at Cal Western in San Diego. And then I was director of admissions at Loyola in LA. And I think I left that job by the age of 29. So maybe 30 something, who remembers? So for the last you know, 10, 12 years, this is all that I've done. I started law school expert in 2004. All that I've done is work with law school applicants to help them reach their goals, essentially, and put together their packages in really smart ways. And because I've been doing this for so long and writing books on it and blogs, etc., I have a really great track record that really shows that my system really works. Um, so I feel very confident in uh, <laughs> calling my website lawschoolexpert.com since it's the only thing I've ever done is law school. Um, 
So I'm here to answer your questions. I, I'll tell you, uh, to start with this, that I don't do LSAT tutoring. I refer those people to come here. A couple of you are here on my suggestion. And I would say that um, one of the scariest moments in my career in the last five years was the day that Nathan sent me an email saying, hey, Anne, are you up for answering an LSAT question for my blog? And I turned to my husband, I think we're on vacation in Hawaii, and he sent it to me, uh, and I turned to my husband and said, should I do this? And my husband's like, don't do this. But I got it. I said, well, only if this is the right answer to that question. Nathan said it was. So I felt like, okay, I can blog about that. I can do that. So he, he's right. Sometimes we overthink things. Um, we think it's supposed to be complicated. Um, therefore, we make it complicated. And I definitely see that as a theme in how uh, law school applicants approach this process as well. So I know that Nathan has a list of questions from people who couldn't be here tonight. But let's, let, I'm, you, it can be anything anything about applying to law school, anything that's on your mind, and you have my full attention. Um, okay, great question um, uh, that I'm just going to repeat a little bit for microphone purpose, which is uh, my LSAC computed GPA is totally different from what I think my GPA is. How do I handle it, essentially? Um, it happens a lot, and when I'm working with clients, one of the first things I tell them to do is send their transcripts to LSAC so we can find out any surprises. And sometimes people don't know that you need to send all of your transcripts to LSAC. I mean, not short-term study abroad things that show up on your regular college uh, transcripts, but, you know, that three-credit course you took in high school, yeah, all that stuff's got to go. Or else your application will get to law school, and they'll call it incomplete, and you've just wasted uh, a lot of time. So, great question. Um, in most cases, it, yes, your transcripts will be attached to your academic summary report, but if they're not, it doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to review your transcripts with great scrutiny. Um, so, what, I think that is something that would be helpful to point out. You said that the difference was between like a 3.2 two and a 3.4? Okay, so from a 3.34 to a 3.12 is fairly significant. Um, so um, I would include a very brief addendum explaining um, that that's the difference, that your um, undergraduate GPA is at, was calculated higher by your academic institution, and here's why. If you took, um, if you failed a course and later repeated it, that can often be one of the reasons that an LSAC uh, GPA is lower because... Um, you, they won't count the repeated grade because it's a way for people to pad their GPAs. And what LSAC is trying to do is make your GPA even whether you went to um, Berkeley undergrad or, or, you know, they're not, they don't want any particular school to have an advantage because of their own grading policies. So it's a way to e make everyone on even footing. So something like that I think is worth a very brief explanation. Yes. Sure. Go ahead. I brought this up on our first day of class here, and you've touched on it on your book, but for somebody like me, I did pretty poorly in undergrad, and I did really well in grad school. My score is going to be computed based on my undergrad grade, so is there hope? <laughs> well, I mean, I have a good, compelling story, but do... Is yes, of course there's hope. Um, you know, there's a lot of it depends that arise in my head when someone tells me the blanket story. Um you know the the blanket facts. Um, it could if your undergrad was quite a few years ago. You know that's a factor. Whereas your master's degree might be more indicative of what you do today and how you dedicate yourself to something. So yes, that can distance you from your undergraduate grades. Um, also, if it also depends on the rigor of your master's degree. You know my answer changes a lot based on whether the graduate degree is from. And hopefully, I'm sure I'll offend 12 people in my following statement. I apologize in advance. If your master's degree is from the University of Phoenix or Kaplan University versus 
Berkeley or Stanford, it's a bit, it's different how the law, the law schools view it differently. So, um, I, yeah. How do they, how do they actually look at your grad school grades since they're not computed in your score? What, what? They're not computed in your undergraduate GPA, but all transcripts are sent to LSAC. They show up and they're part of your transcript package that each law school gets. Mm-hmm. They get, you have to send you them. You consider it then. Absolutely. Okay. But sometimes you need to prod them to consider it. Okay. And you need to just point it out gently. Um, a resume is a great way to point something like that out too. Is simply making sure that those grade, you know, a lot. There's, it's really in fashion now to not have grades on your resume, but um, your resume is a great way to point that out. You know, um, for example, if one of the reasons that your undergraduate GPA is low is that you were self-supporting, you know, and working 30 hours a week, you can put on your resume work 30 hours a week while attending college, and you can put under your master's degree. 3.89 working full time you know like you can show that maturity you don't have to scream everything to the law schools at the top of your lungs there are subtle ways to do it I think and I'll repeat it just for microphone purposes should you make your personal statement match a school's mission statement is the question and no I think mission statements are gobbledygook okay they're all going to sound the same they don't really differentiate anything from anything and your whole point of your personal statement is to differentiate you. Yeah. So I don't think by regurgitating back to the school something like that, that that's very meaningful. If you're applying to Pepperdine, they make you write an essay about how your, their mission statement applies to your life. But you're talking about a very specific Christian-based school that sure, they want to make sure you're a fit. So generally, no, I wouldn't do that. I think there are other ways to show sincere interest in a school, but that wouldn't be one of them. I think that that just... You know, lawyers have a thing they call top sheeting, where you don't really look through the whole case file. You look at whatever was done last, and you respond to that. That, to me, sounds like top sheeting. Like, okay, get, get a list of all the mission statements and just throw in this paragraph for each one. I, I don't find that meaningful. Okay, so the actual first week of my undergraduate program, I let someone copy the answers to my homework. Okay. We got busted. I got a notation on my file. I'm in an interest mm-hmm. candor. I'm going to report it. But how do I spend that to law schools? There's mm-hmm. no record left of it. The record was expunged. And mm-hmm. also, what do I do when the bar asks for documentation about that? Because there is no record. Thank you for saying that, too, because I know that that's not uh, an easy thing to share. And, and usually I do often give people the opportunity to text me questions while I'm talking so they don't have to admit who they are. But my phone's out of battery. Um, so great question. Um, undergraduate, freshman year, um, honor code violation. What do you do? Um, First of all, you do have to report it, okay? And you will report it to the bar. Assuming you didn't then go and kill three people later in, you know, since that incident, and that's the only incident to report, that will not keep you out of any law school in the country so long as you're honest about it. So the way to spin it, so to speak, is to be honest. To say, I made a, not in these exact words, I made a dumb mistake as a freshman, I wasn't thinking, definitely learn my lesson. It's no longer on my record, but I'm reporting it in the interest of candor. And since then, I can prove by, you can even go a little overboard. I can prove by X and Y that honesty and uh, is, is something, and, and ethics are something that are very important to me. It shouldn't be longer than a paragraph, okay? And you'll basically send the bar the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, these are great questions because I'm not going to take a poll but my guess is a third of you have some kind of, especially I live in Santa Barbara and kids at UCSB have a lot of these minor in possession tickets and that's pretty common there in Isla Vista. So 
Um, about a third of you probably have things like this um, or write-ups from dorm for noise violations or what have you. Um, don't hide them. It's pre- they will never keep you out of law school. It's pretty much the worst thing you could do to yourself is hide them. Great question. Um, is there any disadvantage to applying to too many schools? Um, you have to spend a lot of time on those applications, and you're more likely to make mistakes if you're doing too much at once, okay? Assuming a lot of those are fee waivers, you're still talking about paying your LSAC fee every time, okay? Um, so it's not free-free. Um, but I would, I would say this. There shouldn't be a reason to apply to that many schools. Like, yes, you can do it, but it doesn't seem to me like a great approach. Um, I would much rather someone apply to 12 to 18 schools that are selected well than 40 schools because all those nice fee waivers came in. I mean, are you really going to go to Florida Coastal School of Law? Like, you know, I hope not. (laughs) Um, So I I would say you shouldn't need to do that, that you should be exercising some discretion because it takes time to do each application and to do it well. Um, And if you're sending off so many things so quickly, my guess is you're making more mistakes than you think. Um, you, that's that's 45 schools, let's say, that you have to check um, their personal statement prompts, optional essay prompts, um, you know, make sure you're not accidentally sending the University of North Carolina's essays to Duke. Like, it, you shouldn't have to have that. Um, you, you, you sh- I think you'll save yourself a lot of time and stress by really thinking about where you want to go to law school or what law schools you would consider going to in the event you were A, admitted, and B, received a scholarship. Plus, I have another reason. If you do that and apply to all those schools that are getting free applications, you are playing into the evil law school scheme of giving out free applications to keep their acceptance rates low at a time when they're not getting enough applications so that they don't tank in the rankings. So you're just helping them perpetuate this U.S. news crap if you do it. So I have a political agenda there as well. (laughs) Go ahead, your second follow-up. Great question, the scholarship versus school rank question. It's one of my favorite questions. This question is different for every single person because some of you have someone who's going to pay for law school and some of you have someone who even after they help you pay for law school is going to give you a nice down payment for your first house. (laughs) And some of you don't have that and some of you want to do family law or you want to be public interest lawyers and um, so when you're just, this is great, I'm going to actually put down the wine to answer this one. So you really have to, I actually have um, an above the law blog post coming out this Friday that touches on this topic. Um, And I think it actually goes to your first question too. Um, They're related. You have to use this process to make smart choices, okay? And when you're applying to law schools, you should cast a wider net so that you have these great choices to make so that next spring you're deciding, do I take this great scholarship or go to this great school? Okay, I want all of my clients to have that awesome dilemma in front of them. What to do in the end of that is, is really a very personal decision, and there's not just one right answer, and it depends on the schools we're talking about. Um, I have a former client who graduated from University of Pennsylvania Law School two years ago, um, and uh, I recently was invited to her wedding and went to her wedding. And I'm invited to a lot of law school graduations, but not a lot of weddings, so that was pretty cool. Um, And she put me at a table with all of her law school friends, one of whom is now a clerk for Supreme Court Justice. And I sat next to her. This is obviously an incredibly bright young woman. She's a little bit older for entering law school. She was in her um, early 30s when she started. And she... um, 
she chose to go to University of Pennsylvania on scholarship and she turned down Harvard Law School. Not a lot of people would do that, but she thought it through. She thought about what she wanted from her career. She knew she wouldn't have as many years to pay back loans as the graduates who weren't going to be 35 when they graduated. And she knew she didn't have anyone else to lean on to cover that, and she felt she could reach her goals from the law school she chose. She was right, okay? But not everyone is making that decision, and I think probably nine out of 10 people would choose the other way and choose Harvard. Um, especially because of their loan repayment scaling program. So the answer is that it's going to depend a lot on you and what your resources are. And um, I'm, a, I'm a feminist. I grew up in an era where we had to be a little bit feminist. And I still counsel all of my clients to think about how many years do you really think you'll work? Because that makes a difference in how much you should be willing to pay for law school, right? So... This is a very individual decision, but I think that there's not a wrong choice, okay? It, at the extremes, there's a wrong choice, okay? If you're choosing between um, UCLA at full price and Southwestern at full scholarship, you need to have a good reason to do that. One of which might be that you, you're, you know you want to do insurance defense law or personal injury, and you know you can do that from Southwestern, so why take on the debt at UCLA, right? But most people aren't really making that choice. Most people are making choices between very similar law schools, one of which is offering them money and one of which isn't. And what do you do in that sense? You call up GW and say, GW, you know, um, a Catholic gave me 7000 a year. Well, we don't care that Catholic gave you $7,000 a year. But they will care if Fordham gives you 12000 a year because that's a similar school and people are usually applying to both of those. So, Or BC or BU. So... You open the conversation and you see what happens. And that's what most of my clients are really making a choice between. They're not really making the choice between full price at one school and full ride at another. There's not usually as big a compromise as that. Um, okay, I'm just going to repeat the question for this. I, this is actually a question I've never had before, so it's, I love that after 12 years of doing this. Um, um, letter the first part you had me can I I thought you were going with that can I ask someone uh, to write a letter of rec from the college where I transferred from even though it was several years ago because I don't have any letters of rec from the college where I got my degree I was all with you there and then you took it for a spin by saying the guy lost all credibility in academia um <laughs> I, I love a challenge um I would say that if you are desperate for an academic letter and you have no other way, and you have a lower GPA, and you're in desperate need of someone to stand up and say that you're a smart kid and a serious student, you could ask him, okay? Um, and then you can decide what to do with that letter, right? Because you don't have to necessarily use every letter you get because you're allowed to store up to five letters with LSAC. So you don't, law schools only see the letters if you designate that law school to see the letter. So you can play with it a little, but... Um, if you have other options, I would pursue them. Short answer. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Um, the question is, uh, when schools ask to list all the other schools you're applying to, do I recommend it? I do. Um, when I was director of admissions at a law school, I thought it was a crucial question for me. because it, um, Mostly it's a marketing device for me to figure out who my competition is. Um, and I can look at that and know, I will know what schools on that list are pretty much likely to admit you or give you scholarships. And I can decide how badly I want you based upon that. 
Um, it also shows me how reasonable you are. In you know, um, you know, if I have someone with the 141 LSAT who's applying to Harvard, Yale, you know, what have you, you know, I sort of roll my eyes. But most people aren't doing that. Um, it also can show ties to a region, dedication to coming to a region that wouldn't otherwise be, nece be necessarily evident from your application. So if you're out in California, but you're applying to schools in D.C. and nothing on your resume screams D.C., but I see that you're applying to all the D.C. area, you know, comparable schools, that makes me feel like it's more likely you would come out. So I think it doesn't hurt you at all unless you look completely batty by the schools that you chose or you put down 50 law schools. I think you might as well be cooperative because otherwise it looks evasive. And there's, there's, it's very low likelihood it would cause you harm to share that information. Okay, the law schools will know, they, they know who their competitors are. So. Okay, the question is, if you, uh, if you can't get academic letters for whatever reason, where should you look for letters? The answer is really anyone who supervised you in a meaningful way, whether that's at a volunteer position or in a professional capacity. Um, or an internship or what have you, but it should not be a family friend. You've read my book, I mean, you know how I feel about that. It should not be someone who you know only tenuously or who you shadowed for a day. Um, it, should, it should be someone who can say something meaningful about your contributions in a professional setting. Um, it could be something non-traditional. It could be that you audited a writing class. It could be almost anything. I, I've had a couple people over the years ask me, can my LSAT tutor write me a letter of recommendation? Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of that. I think that looks really lame, but because um, this is someone we all know you're paying to help you with that. Yeah, it doesn't look nice. So, um, but I, I would say that. I would say that anyone who supervised you in a meaningful capacity is fair game. So go ahead. So I'm, I'm for some Miami. Miami so. um, Okay, uh, if you're trying to break into a region that it looks like you have no ties to, does it help to sort of share why you're doing that? Yes, it does. Um, because um, it makes anything that makes schools think you're more likely to attend their law school helps you, especially if you're an applicant who's on the cusp, or even if you think it's a safety school, to be honest. Because anything that shows them you're more likely to attend than someone else who sort of is in that ballpark um, makes you less likely to get waitlisted and more likely to be admitted. Um, so if you're, for example, applying to University of Miami and you write, most a lot of people from California do that, for example, to make the case for why they want to be entertainment lawyers because they have a good entertainment program or property program, um, you, sh you know, to also say, I'm moving here because my fiance is there or my parents are retiring and moving there and this is where I want to be or um, I spent summers growing up in Coral Gables and therefore, you know, whatever it is, who would spend summers in Coral Gables, but... <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think, you know, to, to make that case, whether as part of your personal statement or, or in an additional document or even in a, se a separate letter um, to the law school would be appropriate. Um, or to go visit the school can accomplish that as well, is to show that you went to the trouble of getting on an airplane and going to the schools, you know, in, in the region and, and, and meeting people face-to-face -face and saying, I came out here because this is really where I hope to practice and this is definitely where I want to come for law school and making that statement. I'm a, I, I think that's wise. Yeah. Yes. Um, the question is, is in cases like that, should you have a separate personal statement for that school? It's generally not necessary, um, depending on what school we're talking about. I mean, some schools like uh, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of uh, University of Colorado Boulder has a whole separate personal statement. That's a different question. I think this is something can, that in nine out of 10 cases can be mushed into an existing personal statement seamlessly. Um, 
if it can't be, then it could be something um, that could be shared perhaps in a diversity statement, or it could be something that's just shared in an extra addendum, or you can just do all the other things I said. But no, I wouldn't write a whole personal statement about why I want to be in South Florida. No, I don't think that's necessary, and I think you lose an opportunity there to share something really meaningful about yourself. Um, it could be that, for example, we'll take the South Florida example because not too many people from here want to go as far across the country as possible. Um, to, <laughs> to <laughs> I did the opposite track, so I understand. Um, to bring forward those ties to that community in your personal statement if it works like if you volunteered there for a summer or if the events you're talking about occurred there um there there may be cases in which that would work you know but generally no i wouldn't do a whole personal statement on on why i want to be in that region yes absolutely uh the question is how long will lsac store letters of rec and if you're not planning to apply quite yet should you go ahead and ask professors for letters i absolutely advise doing that I, they'll store them for up to five years um and the, there are many reasons to do that but amazingly enough no matter how star a student you are your professors will not remember you in two years they won't they i mean think how many people they see and how hard it is to stand out in such a way in a good way that they would still remember you all these years later so i absolutely advocate if you're even thinking about going to law school in the next five years get a letter get your academic letters while you can yes what i don't like to see is someone who's been out in the working world for four years and they're submitting an internship letter from the one time they worked for a da five years ago that i don't like to see that looks odd to me but to have if you know so many schools really emphasize the faculty letters so if you're not planning to use your gap time your time after graduating to attend another academic program then i do recommend going ahead and getting those letters on file yes um the question is is three letters of rec enough it absolutely is okay and um, most schools only want two or three um, a couple schools will accept four but what i don't believe in is quantity over quality okay so i never want an applicant to have four letters of rack three of which are awesome and one of which is like meh like i don't want that i don't want any meh in an application i want only stellar stuff so i'd rather you have fewer letters of rack and have them be really meaningful speaking about you than have one that seems like it was forced so um in this case it was a blessing right because now you don't have to decide which letters to send to which schools that she made the decision for you so good for her <laughs> she made something easier <laughs> yes teacher heavy um teacher heavy every time um yeah, e even if you're working in a law firm, um, if the fact that you're working in a law firm is on your resume, okay? If you are not agree, if you don't, if you have something in your undergraduate transcripts that you're concerned about not being strong, you want to err on the side of academic letters because you want professors to come out and say this is a bright kid, and then have them say, okay, the overall GPA doesn't show that, but this is a bright kid and a serious student, and here's why. Um, it's very hard for a work letter, even from a law firm, to be really stand out. Um, one is good, like I might balance two academic letters and one. If you've been working at the firm for a significant period of time, you know, I wouldn't say six months, but I would say if you've really done serious stuff um, and someone can say something very meaningful about the projects and your interaction with them. And, and so here's a great example. Um, I have a client right now who has a very high GPA from undergrad, two of his, but he's been working for a year for a very prestigious law firm in New York, okay, as a paralegal. And um, 
the letter of rec that he's getting from work is really one that's emphasizing that all the other people who've been that person's paralegal have gone on to NYU, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, and that he fits into that group um, intellectually because of A, B, and C. That's a great letter, okay? Um, but I wouldn't choose that letter instead of ha having the academics. Like, I think it's a good balance. Does that answer? Okay. I also think if you have a job at a law firm, many of the attorneys will write the same things, you know, really, because you're doing sort of similar work for all of them. And so it, it's, it can become repetitive, but there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, those are great letters. It's like choosing between two good things. You know, you, you can't really go terribly wrong, but if I had to pick, I'd pick the academic. That's an awesome question. Um, if I'm asked to draft my own letter of recommendation, how enthusiastic should I be? Um, I think that the best legal arguments are not made with um, verbiage. They're made with facts, okay? You're learning that a little bit in here. Um, it's the facts that make the argument. And so the best letter of rec you could um, outline for her would be one that provides her with all the facts. Here's what I've done. Here's what you said about how I did it. Here's what I learned from it. Here's how I contributed to the team. Um, that's better than saying, oh, Jennifer, I don't know your name, but oh, Jennifer is like the best. Oh my God, I love her. That's not so, you know, who cares? Um, but a, a great argument about I've supervised Jennifer for 18 months. Um, I've been in this position for 14 years. Jennifer's in the top three people I've ever supervised. Here's why. I was very impressed when she handled this. She handled the difficult situation here. She solved problem X here. She's incredibly bright, well-spoken, great problem solver, the end. Um, if you look at the LSAC website and you just type in the search box transcripts, it has a really, it's the only useful thing on the LSAC website, in my opinion, is the list of, it's a very clear list of all the transcripts that are, that they need. And one of the things is if you studied abroad for a year, not nine months, but for a year, then they need the transcripts separately from your undergraduate institution. Um, you can read the exceptions to this online, but if you did a long-term study abroad, then that, that would apply. Okay. And then my second question Absolutely, just beware. So for example, if you went to like, what's a London School of Economics, something like that. The British write different letters of rec than we write. They're much more reserved and they can come off sounding not very enthusiastic. So I would make sure that the person you're asking from that program has a cultural understanding of what's expected from the letter. But yes, it's fair game for a letter of rec. And they'll only accept a year's worth of study abroad, nothing less. They'll only accept, you mean, you don't have to send them transcripts from anything less. I just was under the impression that my study abroad grades are in my uh, college. If they're in your, that's right, because they're on your college transcripts, you don't need them sent from your institution where you studied abroad. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. Correct. That's why you don't have to get them separately. Okay, so they would count if they're already on the college. That's correct. It's not that they don't count, it's that you don't have to request the transcript. Gotcha. I apologize, I, I misunderstood the first way you asked the question, so, okay. yeah. Did I clear it up, though? You okay. You had a question here. Um, I was wondering if military letters of recommendation... Fabulous. Love them. They're the best. No one knows how to write a letter of rec 
like someone in the military. They train them. They've got points one, two, three, four with like real like paragraphs about real stuff and how you handled 1,600 tons of armory this. And like, they're so detailed. I love military letters of rec. Get as many as you can. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, seriously. They know how to write a letter of rec. Every military letter of rec I've ever read is like perfect. So was that, did I interrupt you or is that really what you were asking? That's kind of what I was asking. I yeah. Mean, I know Awesome. It's awesome. Well, but you know what? That's important. It, it is important. It does show those things because when I read um, a military resume or military letter of rec, as someone who did not have that experience, I get a real understanding of how much responsibility you had and how much you were accountable for. And really, isn't that what we're looking for in lawyers is people who are accountable and detail-oriented? I mean, who are leaders and step up and can work as part of a team, like military, you know, hello. Like, I, I love those letters. So don't worry about the fact that it's not about the thesis you wrote, okay? I, I believe in worrying about the things you can control and not the things you can't. And... Um, if what you have is military letters, for example, what, what's common with people who have military letters is they did most of their education online. It may not be the case in your case, but it is very common, and so it's very hard to get academic letters. And so this is very common for people who served in the military. So I'll take that letter happily. Yeah. There was a question over here. Yes, go ahead. So I have a question about this. Awesome. Okay. Two very different questions. So and I, I, quite honestly, I could... Um, teach two nights a week for a year about personal statements, okay, and diversity statements. So I'm going to give you like the, the quick wrap it up in a bow um, answer. If you're writing about the same thing in your personal statement, your diversity statement, you're not adding anything to your application. If the same topic has different ways of addressing, okay, so he, here's an example. I have so many examples, it's hard to choose, but here's an example. Um, a client who, do you have any international students in here? No, okay, so I won't use that example. How about um, a client who grew up the child, children of immigrants, you don't have to raise your hands, grew, grew up the children of immigrants, and um, your diversity statement might be about the um, financial, what you, financial difficulties you had and how you had to put yourself through school and you had to help your parents with their business on the weekends and you didn't get piano lessons like other kids. And your personal statement can be about your cultural understanding of the world and um, how your parents got into legal troubles and you were the person who had to step in and file the unlawful detainers, you know, then you're talking about the same part of you but approaching it very differently. And in that case, it would be very appropriate to write essentially about the same thing in two essays. Does that example make sense? But what I often see people do is write their personal statement about how much they look up to their mother who is an immigrant and their personal statement, their diversity statement about being the child of an immigrant. And it's like, okay, got it. Like, I don't need that. I, but that, the first example I gave you would be a fair way to approach it um, and, and not be repetitive. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't write a diversity statement, but sometimes if what you're telling in your personal statement is your diversity statement, you don't need a diversity statement. Like, you don't have, more is not necessarily better. If that's the best personal statement for you, leave it at that and, and stand on it on solid ground. You don't get, you get bonus points for being diverse if you share it in your personal statement. It's not like you get extra bonus points by writing about it again, you know. So, 
Okay, so weightless, which none of you should really be thinking about right now, (laughs) but is one of my favorite things. So at many law schools, especially top law schools, more than half the class is admitted off the waitlist. Everyone got that? That's a big deal. Really huge deal. This is how you get into the REACH schools. This is even, in many cases, sadly, how you get into safety schools sometimes. Because the schools don't really think you're going to come, so they're going to waitlist you and make you show some interest before they you know, mess with their acceptance rates. Okay, So waitlisting is huge. Obviously, I have a whole chapter launching your campaign to get in or what have you. And But this is really one of the major ways that I enjoy helping my clients because this is where you really see results. Um, if you stop with your law school application process in... November when you submit applications and that's all you do, you will not get into the law schools that you really want to get into if you wait for them to come to you, okay? You need to be proactive. I tell people, if you're in the mindset that you're going to know where you're going to law school April 1st, you're, you're going to lose out. You need to be in the mindset where you, know, you will know where you're going to law school August 15th. Seriously. Unless you, you get into your first choice law school April 1st, awesome, but For most of you, the way you're going to get into that awesome law school that you really want to attend is by waiting it out, okay? Um, I had someone who was start, his first choice was UCLA Law School, waitlisted, applied early decision, waitlisted, 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 waitlisted. He finally decided to attend Emory. Uh, First day of classes at Emory, he gets a call from UCLA. Okay? He didn't have to come on back, but he wanted to. You know, It was worth what he was losing by, doing, by, by making that change. So um, the most important thing, I think, now to think about waitlists is to get in your head that this is not about April 1, but August 1. Nathan? Well, follow on to that then. What do you do about all those deposit deadlines? Okay, this is a great question. You, should, you need to put a deposit somewhere. You need to have a seat. Okay, so I'm amazed at how many people don't understand that. Um, you need to put a deposit somewhere until a certain date. Off the top of my head, I want to say it's June 1st or June 15th. You're allowed to put two deposits at schools. And after whatever that magic date is in June, the schools can then come back to you and say, put up or shut up. Remove the other depositor we're taking you off our roster. Okay? But a school where you're waitlisted can never say to you, you can't have a deposit somewhere. And they never would say that. They want you to have a deposit somewhere. Now... I will say this, law schools are getting incredibly sneaky. I, I mean it. I just read uh, a client's, uh, the new application that's out for Columbia Law School. And Columbia now has a statement on their application that you agree if you send them a deposit, you won't send a deposit anywhere else. However, they're not saying you can't be on a wait list anywhere else if you send them a deposit. Okay, so law schools are being very savvy about this, so you need to be savvy about this. But Multiple, multiple deposits, fine. And deposit deadlines are negotiable, okay? They're no, everything's negotiable. You're going to be lawyers, okay? So everything's negotiable. You should see my husband buy a car. It's so embarrassing. Um, he's a lawyer, obviously. Okay, so if, if you want to visit WashU St. Louis, never been to St. Louis, sounds like a great place. You've got a great scholarship there. But they're telling you that you have to submit a deposit to them and no one else in order to keep that scholarship, say to them, I can't get there till after spring break. Can I come in in March? And that would be too early. That's not a good example. I can't get there until after classes are over the first week of June. If I come then and see the school, will you extend the deposit deadline for me? If they don't do it, they're jerks. Why would you want to go to that law school? Okay? Um, Keep that in mind. 
Okay, if you visiting law schools is super important before you make your decision. And that's something people don't really talk about because they just think you should be able to judge where you want to go to law school based on the rankings. If you're doing that, that's first step in making a bad decision for yourself. Right there. Yes, go ahead. The question is, if I'm planning to submit the December, uh, to take the December LSAT, that's enough wine for me for tonight. Um, <laughs> if I'm planning to take the December LSAT, when should I submit applications? Uh, early January, as soon as LSAC opens back up after the holidays. Um, January 6th through 10th, 6th through 12th. Um, I have a list of like seven reasons that I give people for why they should not submit applications before they take the December LSAT, even if they already have an LSAT score on record. Does that list interest you or no? Okay. Um, reason number one, law schools make mistakes. Okay. They review applications you don't want them to review yet. All right, and then you've got a denial that you then cry about and then try to appeal and it's very messy and stressful. Two, no review. I'm gonna to try to make these cheat words easy. They're not gonna review it if you say you have a pending LSAT score and you don't wanna hide the fact that you have a pending LSAT score because then you'll get a decision you don't like, okay? Three, I've quoted this before and actually a competitor LSAT company got very upset with me for saying this in front of their class but I don't think it will bother Nathan I'm also dating myself with this example. It's what I call the two horses, one ass thing. Anyone heard me say this? I think I did this at a podcast with you or so someone, and someone got their, okay, Sweet Home Alabama, I'm from Alabama, so it's a movie, Reese Witherspoon, it's really old, you were probably not born yet, but, to, okay. Okay, there's a great line in there about you can't ride two horses with one ass sugar pea or whatever it is, sugar bean, I don't know. So it's true. If you're putting all this energy into studying for the LSAT and putting all this energy into your applications, you're giving 50% energy to both of those things and neither one is going to go well, especially if you're also working or going to school. Here's a fourth reason. Let's see if I remember all seven. Fourth is um, no, no addendum opportunity. Okay, how are you going to submit an addendum with your application that explains your improvement in your LSAT score if you don't know what your improvement is your LSAT? I mean, it's just dumb. Um, oh, how am I doing? One, two, three, four. How about number five would be, um, it was just on the tip of my tongue, no addendum. Oh, how do you know where to apply? Where to apply? Where? Okay. You don't know where to apply. I could go on and on. Don't, don't do this. It's silly. I might have given... A modified answer to this in 2008 when 40% more people were applying to law school. But in this day and age, I've seen in the last three years, I've really seen very little difference between my the outcomes for my clients with similar credentials who are applying in November versus January. I've seen very little difference in the outcomes in terms of scholarship offers, wait lists, admittance. There's only one school where I've seen a little exception to that. I felt that my clients last year who applied to Harvard, who had the same credentials, um, those who applied in, uh, in October, I felt did get in rather than waitlisted, whereas some with similar credentials who applied after the December LSAT were a little waitlisted before they had to get in. Not all of them did get in. Um, but I would say generally that's not the case. And um, I just don't see any reason to go with the applying before the December LSAT plan. Okay, I also think it's, it's a waste of money, energy, um, and you have other fish to fry. So I, I, I don't suggest it. Elizabeth. Yeah, so I, I'm um, sorry, I'm gonna wind this back to what is your recommendation. Sure. But um, I have 
I work for an attorney, and um, he's curious whether it's unethical for me to read the uh, letter of rec. Sorry if you brushed over this. No, no, this is, a, this is a great question. Um, when you sign up on LSAC, you absolutely, absolutely should check the box that waives your right to see, to see this letter. It's very different from what your attorney is talking about. What this means is that you're not going to sue LSAC or the law schools to see the letters as the reason for why you didn't get into a law school. It does not mean you have never seen the letter nor will ever see the letter. So um, I don't consider it an ethical violation, but whom I, but, but really the thing is if he signs off on the letter and he says it's true and he chooses to show it to you and he's submitting it to LSAC, I don't have a problem. And I would actually argue it's increasingly common practice. Okay, so it doesn't really concern me. I don't ask because I think that's unprofessional to ask to see the letter of rec. But if someone offers to share it with you or says to you, why don't you give me some bullet points? Or why don't you tell me, you know, a little bit about what you want me to address? Or um, you write the first draft and I'll fix it? Totally fine. But I don't believe it sounds professional to say, can I see what you're sending? You either trust the person or you don't. Yes. I went to a Jesuit high school and I'm applying to a Jesuit um, law school. Okay. Should I mention that somewhere? It class? can, especially if that Jesuit law school is Santa Clara, where they ask you why you want to go to Santa Clara. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding the question correctly. You've taken the effort to go meet with people who work in the law clinic at the, univer at the law school where you're hoping to apply. Yeah, I was introduced to them. Okay, well, I think you can use that... I think you can say this is one of the things that has impressed you about the school and one of the things you hope to contribute to as a student at that school. Yes. Um, and I think to keep in touch with those individuals and let them know you've applied is awesome too. Yes, I think that's entirely appropriate and shows that you took initiative and that you know what you're getting yourself into. I like all of those things. There was another hand up. Yes, go ahead. Um, can you talk great, great question. The, the question is, do law schools evaluate people differently based on uh, if they're a non-traditional student or applying part-time. Um, by non-traditional, I no longer, that's not three years out of undergrad. That's someone who's been out of undergrad for a significant period of time, who's in their 30s, 40s, 50s, what have you. Um, I think that law schools, uh, there's no quotas on it, but I think that law schools like to have those individuals um, when ever, all the other ducks are in a row. You know, like when, when law schools don't like those individuals is when it looks a little crazy, like they're 62 and they've been a chiropractor for 30 years and now they're playing a law school and like that law school sort of go, huh, you know what? Um, but I've had some very successful applicants who are in their 40s, even mid 40s, applying to law schools and. Um, whose grades were from a very long time ago sometimes, and sometimes they went back to school because they didn't initially go to college. I think that those individuals bring a lot of really cool stuff to law school, and law schools appreciate that, um, and understanding of how the world really works, and bring something very, depending on what you've been doing during your time off, um, you bring a perspective to the classroom that law schools value. You're someone who employers will generally value because you know what it is to work for a living. Uh, you know, I think that if you celebrate, it really works. If you've been in a profession that's completely unrelated and it'll look a little crazy, you might want to justify somewhere in your application the choice that you're making. But if you're, you're looking at the resume and it totally makes sense, I'm all for it. Like if you've been a scientist and now you want to do IP law or whatever it is. I mean, some of these things really make sense. And so I think for non-traditional applicants, the personal statements are much more geared toward why law school than another applicant. 
because you almost want to say, I've thought about this decision. Here's why it makes sense for me. And to follow up on that, like most of my re- letters of recommendation will be work-related, you know, oh. managers and directors. Mm-hmm. Um, if I won't really have too much of any really academic You You work with what you've got, and you don't worry about what you don't got. Okay. So it's okay not to have a academic. Absolutely. Go ahead. Back in the back. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. I apologize. Yes. Um, as another a non-traditional student, um, who's been, I'm finishing undergrad right now, but I have um, I was out of school for many years, and I have very early transcripts that are very, very choppy, like very like mm-hmm. messy. So, um, should they be addressed in the personal statement? Or no, but they should be addressed. Yeah. Um, a question on the applications will be, did you, uh, was your education interrupted? Okay, you will have to answer that, so that's the place to answer it. I initially took some credits right out of col- I, right out of high school. I tried to go to college. It wasn't for me at the time. My heart wasn't in it. When I did this instead. When I came back to school 16 years later, my heart was in it. Here's how I did. This is why these grades are more indicative of my potential. I speak quickly, so if anyone needs me to slow down and drive, I've said it a few thousand times in my life, so I apologize. Yes? So, um, I recently, out of uh, undergrad, I have two jobs that are willing to give me a letter of rec, and I have like three uh, professors that are, really willing, uh, that are willing to give me a letter of rec, uh, two of them that I work really close with. Um, should I... Uh, one job's from the university that I worked for for four years. One job is when I got out and I worked for a year. What kinds of jobs? What were you doing in these jobs? Um, the one in the university, I was just parking services. And now? Uh, the one, uh, I, I was actually a manager at a third party logistics. Okay. Well, that can be on your resume. Yeah. Um, um, and the fact that you worked during college is awesome, but that's all resume stuff. I go with the professors every time in your case. If you feel they're going to be strong letters, I mean, if, if you had to beg them for letters and you don't think they really know you, it's different, but it sounds like especially one of them you worked very closely with. Yeah, one of them I worked closely with. The other one I was pretty close with, and then the third one is just, uh, I have. Well, if, if the third one is perfunctory and the last letter, um, even if it was parking services, logistics coordinator, whatever it was, um, would be more meaningful about your maturity and responsibility and projects you handled and problem solved and trustworthiness, then I would bump that up over a professor whose letter is going to be less stellar. I'd have the two stellar professor letters and a really enthusiastic work reference in that case. Yeah. a great question. The question is, should I choose a letter of rec that will be more meaningful even though I only worked there for three months or somewhere where I really worked for a year? Uh, I go with the more meaningful letter every time. Yeah, because the fact that you had longevity at another position can be exhibited on your resume. Yes? And it's okay to not have work letters of rec even if you've been working at that job for two years? Yes, and in fact that's very common because most people don't want to tell their employers that they're leaving their jobs. So... Um, <laughs> You know, I have uh, one client who's texting me today while I'm on BART, and he's like, uh, you know, the texts are coming in intermittently since I came in from Oakland. And, um, you know, he's saying, Anne, you know, um, do I ask for the letters today and then quit on Monday, or do I, you know, you know, <laughs> it's a real problem. Um, so in his case, he really needs those letters, so he has to be delicate about it. But no, I mean, that's a very common thing, and I, I don't worry about that. That's a really good question. The question is, if I'm applying to a joint degree program, do I need two separate sets of letters? Can the same can can there be overlap? 
Um, can you use the same materials generally is probably the question. So I'm going to start with a disclaimer, lawyer, um, that I'm not an expert on anything other than law school admissions, okay, um, including parenting, not so much an expert, but, but just law school admissions. So 99 times out of 100 for joint programs, you're not applying at the same time. You're applying to the joint program while you're a first-year law student, Okay. There are some exceptions to that at very high-ranked schools, okay? But for the most part, you're not doing the same thing at the same time. If you are so dedicated to doing that joint program that you're only going to law school that offers it, I think that it's worth making that case to the schools. Um, whether you should use a, the same personal statement for both, I can't answer. Letters of rec can say how dedicated you are doing that program. But my issue is that when you presented this question to me, you said in public policy or something else, like you're not sure. If, and that's the part I want to glom on to, the not sure part. Because in my experience, my clients who come to me saying they're going to do joint degrees never end up doing them. There are a lot of reasons for that, okay? Um, and people who do end up joint de- doing joint degrees decide that while they're a first-year law student. Um, I don't know if you really want me to go into the reasons why people don't do it, but you, if you'd said to me, I am doing a JD MPA, I would be more open to having your letters of rec talk specifically about how you, those people think that, that you getting that joint degree will help you reach your goal, especially if they're people who have that background, right? But if it's someone who doesn't have that background, I think it's weird for them to incorporate that, okay? So I would say generally to keep it to law school, and uh, except in a very rare circumstance that I haven't come across yet where someone is so committed, they're doing that program for a very specific reason, every job they ever want requires them to have both degrees. Mm-hmm. You know? So then I could just say, we write letter of recognition for law school, yes. keep it on file because I might ask you to just edit and Correct. change the like, first two sentences. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, if you're, you, you, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the easy answer. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Um, how, how much everything should really be on your resume? Um, if you've been out of school for 20 years, should you put down like an entire listing for every job you held during college? Probably not. However, there are some creative ways to do this if you want to get credit for working during college. For example, you can just have a line at the bottom, college employment, work 20 hours a week at various bars um, and restaurants uh, while attending school. You don't have to like list every employer, but you might want to get that information because when you fill out your bar application, they're going to ask you all that stuff. Um, but I would say that... Um, you don't have to share everything with the same amount of detail if you have a lot of other things that are more relevant and substantive. But yes, I do think generally you should get credit for the things you've done because it's your only chance to do that. And everyone else is doing it, so you're selling yourself short by not doing it, if that makes sense. There are some exceptions to this. Um, there are some things I want glossed over, uh, but I still want those people to get credit for working. Like, for example, I had a client a year or two ago who made her living during college um like as what's the name the promotional people at bars who wear the cute little t-shirts and the shorts and give out the samples of shots i don't know i don't go to clubs anymore something like that so i glossed over that like had her say something like worked um 10 hours a month in the hospitality industry or something um because i don't really want that image in anyone's head so um but generally yes she should still get credit for the fact she was out there working you know gotta make a living there were other hands here. It's a little dark in some places, so forgive me. Yes, go ahead. Um, how, how 
<laughs> I love that question. How important is ranking when choosing a law school? Um, no one is really choosing between a top 10 law school and a fourth tier law school. Okay, no one's doing that. That just shows bad judgment in choosing your schools to apply to and um, lack of direction generally. Um, it depends on what you want to do when you graduate. Okay, so what I, I and again, um, if you didn't hear, I, I mentioned on Friday I have a, a blog post coming out on Above the Law that goes into this a little bit. How, wh what you should think about before you apply to make good decisions when you f about where to go, right? You should think about what career options you're going to want. Look at people who have those careers at where they attended law school. Keep that search to the last five or six years. Don't look at people who graduated from law school 40 years ago and where they went. Um, see where you'll have access to the job that you want. Number one, where do you need to go given the job that you want? If you don't know what job you want, then think higher than you think <laughs> you may end up working. You know, don't think lower, you know. Um, but I think, you know, ranking is one thing that's important. However, here's, here, here's what I'll leave you with on that question is do you have to leave California? Should you leave California because you got into a better ranked school somewhere else? I get this question a lot. California, we're in a very unique situation with law schools because we pretty much have a law school for everyone here. Most states don't. Okay, most states you have to leave the state if you want to go to a law school with a certain reputation. In California, we've got entry-level law schools all the way up to Stanford. Okay, that, this, everyone should be happy at one of those. All right? Um, and uh, so here, do, some people will ask me, Anne, should I go to Fordham um, because, it, I'm just going to paraphrase, because it's a top 25 or 30, depending on the year, or should I go to Hastings? Well, that's a great question. How, where do you want to work? Well, I want to work in the Bay Area. Well, how are you going to get interviews when you're out in New York? When you're, I think there's more to think about here, you know, than just literal rankings. Um, I have, I think I have a quote in this edition of the book. If not, I had it in the earlier edition from 2009. Just because U.S. News' top 25 should not be your top 25. You should have your own top 25. Yes? I feel kind of embarrassed asking about this for letters, but um, I have two really strong academic letters already, but I have been toying with the idea of asking my sorority advisor that I was very involved with all four years of undergrad, who I'm pro I, who probably knows me just as well as my mom does. I just and I just don't know like if a law school would take that seriously or or like. Okay. Can I ask you a couple that. questions about the letter? Did you have a leadership position in your sorority? Okay. It, would it be more of a question, would the letter be more addressing your accomplishments in that realm and growth, or would it be addressing a character reference or both? Um, like, would it be... Um, I think all of the above. She's helped me get, like, job opportunities before, and she could, like, she was very inclined, knew about, you know, everything that I was working on with school, knew about academic achievements, and... Yeah, but the law schools will know all of that about you, too. So you only want to get that letter if it's going to add something new and shed new light. So, for example, if there was some big problem you solved in the sorority or you led it through something difficult or you were just a really well-respected leader um, and, and you could ask her to write a letter. I also don't know her educational background. I don't know anything about her. Um, 
But if it's going to be more about your accomplishments within the sorority, great. But you don't need someone else parroting you're a good student because I'm going to know about that from your transcript, from your resume, from your academic letters. So it needs to have some novel purpose within your application. Yes? What about like male and female letters of recommendation? I'm thinking all mine would be from women and if I should try to get a man also. Oh, that's so cool. I never thought of that. Don't worry about it. You're overthinking it. Um, I much prefer that than the opposite, right? Where a young man only has letters from men. I think, but the fact that women respect you and the work you're doing says a lot. So I'm all for it. Um, <laughs> I said feminist. I, what do you want? Um, no, but that's a good question. I, that, I think that's also, and I'm going to pick on you, so forgive me, a really great example of overthinking things. Okay. Um, I get a lot of questions where I, okay, I have a client right now who's submitting his applications and I adore him. I've been working with him for like eight months because he was one of those go-getters who signed up super early. And, you know, he's sending me the spacing. Do I like the spacing on resume A versus the spacing on resume B? And I, I'm staring at these PDF files for like 10 minutes. Then, what, what, are you sure you said two different files? Like, he said, no, see where the 2011 cuts in here? I'm like, oh my God, shut up. No one cares. Is it consistent all throughout that one document? Done. Submit. Like, you know, you could drive yourself batty or me batty. But um, really, I think it's a question of overthinking. Um, and so think about, like, in the real world, do these things really matter? And that's a good test. Um, I don't know if I'm overthinking this. I'll tell you. Trust me. <laughs> I don't know how this is going to come out, but referring back to the personal statement, um, if you're coming from a background that's middle class, and uh, as a law school uh, admissions director, uh, if you're reading a, a, a personal statement from somebody of that background, do you have a hard time believing that person has actual struggles with like financial aid? Um, or does it de- just depend on how, you're, how you uh, articulate? It's a really good question, actually. It's, it's not an overthinking question. It's a good question. Um, so middle class means a lot of different things to a lot of people in our class-centered society in the last decade. So I, I would, I, what I never want to see someone do is apologize for growing up with privilege, okay? Um, and this comes out a lot. Um, and uh, forgive me for making assumptions here. So let's pretend I had, I had a client last year or maybe the year before who... Uh, African-American grew up in a white suburb. Parents were doctors, I think, or professionals. No, no, no. The father worked for um, a car company. She was from Detroit. And so she, you know, she felt very like, okay, well, how can I write about this without sounding like I grew up privileged? Because my dad was pretty big in the car company. And so what we came up with was actually how, if I remember correctly, what happened when... Detroit sort of went down the tubes and how that changed her childhood. Not that she became suddenly less privileged, but that she suddenly became more aware of what privilege meant. That was a really impactful essay. Um, another way to do it is is to not apologize. You know, not not. First of all, it it may not even be relevant in your application, the kind of family, you know, but it could be. Um, and I read a lot of essays from people who um, were the only one of something in their neighborhood. 
you know, or it could be, um, and that can be pretty impactful because you have a different sense of yourself. But generally, the main thing I urge people to do is don't apologize. Like, I don't have any major, you know, problems in life. Sorry. Because I grew up privileged, I wanted to help others. I was told that if you help, you know, if you are given things, you must give to others. I don't want to read that. It's boring and trite. I, I generally don't want to read that unless there's a really strong case for it in a particular circumstance. So, I would say don't apologize for who you are. Present how whatever the situation is shaped you and why it's relevant in your personal statement. Um, and I think that that, is that sort of answering? Yeah, but uh, what if you actually did have struggles? Well, the, hard no, why would it be hard convincing? I, no, I mean, no one is, even <laughs> people fall off high horses all the time too, you know, I mean, no, why would, no, you wouldn't have, if you want the law schools to know you had some kind of financial struggle, there are definitely ways to share that, okay? It might be a personal statement, it might be an addendum to show why you had to work so much during college or why you couldn't go to law school right after college, or, I mean, I could think of a thousand different scenarios, but no, if you've had real problems that have guided your decisions or that you've made in life, that could happen to anyone, whether you grew up very privileged or not. So, no, I, I don't think there's a problem with believing it. And, and there's, there shouldn't be any impact on financial aid. It's totally separate. You're welcome. Am I boring everyone? No. Okay, go ahead. Um, the question is, uh, I'm going to take the second part because I get that one a lot. If you're on the National Board of a Fraternity in a volunteer capacity, should someone at the national level write you a letter of recommendation? Um, the question is, again, it depends. Um, get used to that in law school. Um, if you're one of those people who doesn't have a lot of letters of rec from other places and really needs something, I'm all for it. But you're going to get to share on your application that you were on that national board. It's one of those leadership positions law schools are familiar with. They understand it. They understand you had to be a leader at the local level to be pulled up and that you went to con you can put on your resume, you went to these leadership conferences and leadership trainings and what have you. So um, I wouldn't say that's your best letter of rec unless you, you, you know, so some people are really honestly desperate for letters. Like, we got to get who we can get, in which case that's a fair person. But it wouldn't be a first choice unless it's really going to add something I wouldn't already know about you. Yes? So, um, on my resume, I, I also work concurrently during, throughout my undergraduate um, academia. And I'm wondering, how long is too long for a resume? I've really never seen an instance where a resume should be more than two pages. Um, the only exception is I had someone who had a lot of published academic work, so I allowed that individual, allowed, suggested for that individual, take all the publications and put them on a separate third page. But this is someone with really extensive experience. You know, he'd been, a, I think, a U.S. patent agent and this and that and had three master's degrees. I mean, in general, I can't think of a lot of reason to have a three-page resume. And I often think that these people who have long resumes, it's because you don't know how to format a resume. I don't put references on law school resumes. Okay. There's no reason for it. You have your letters of recommendation. Yes? Um, I am taking the LSAT a second time. So LSAT has my score from the first time around. So I've been getting a lot of emails mm -hmm. from law schools. And in a lot of the generic emails are like invitations to come visit or, you know, the like... Meet with us the night before the yeah. forum or come to our reception. Yeah, or, yeah. or like email me if you visit, blah, blah, blah. Is it worth it? 
If you're interested in the school, you follow up. If you're not interested, put it in the junk mail. Nathan keeps no emails in his inbox. Has he given you this speech? Aren't you the person who told me to keep no emails in my inbox ever? Inbox zero. Yeah. So... I, I don't do that. My inbox is embarrassing. But yeah, those are things that you can ignore a lot of that. But if you're interested in a school, it's a great opportunity to say, actually, yes, I'm interested in a school. So is the, I see you. School, I see you. Okay, go ahead. Does visiting a school during yes. the time that you've applied or before, does that impact a lot? It can. Uh, the law schools will tell you it does not impact anything. Okay. okay? Don't believe them. They're lying. It impacts things. It shows serious interest. It's an opportunity for them to meet you face-to-face, make judgments, good or bad. Um, It allows for you to follow up with that law school to a real individual and say, oh, I just submitted my application. Such and such law school is my first choice. Oh, I submitted my application eight weeks ago. Just wanted to check in. It makes you more than just a piece of paper. Or now we don't even deal with paper. It makes you more than just a PDF file. Um, So, yeah, I highly recommend it. I don't think people have to go, go crazy or go broke traveling the country visiting law schools, but... Um, I'm always amazed when people say to me, like, Anne, I applied last year. I was waitlisted at a bunch of schools. And I say, did you go visit any of those schools? No. Not even the one 30 miles from you? No. Yeah. Go ahead. So I heard that we have to have our parents' information for applying to financial aid. Um, especially, like, Berkeley. Apparently Berkeley is one of those schools that, like, really wants... But my parents are, like, non-involved in my... Are you talking about on the application or on the financial aid application? Financial aid. Okay, so, again, disclaimer, I've never worked on the financial aid loan kind of side of things. Um, And law schools have financial aid offices where you can call and ask these questions. But I think the Berkeley thing you might be referring to, I'm not sure, is that Berkeley on its application has a socioeconomic questionnaire and they ask you how many people of your high school class went on to college and how much money do your parents make. But it's completely optional. You can answer some questions and not others. You don't have to provide that information. Um, but in terms of the actual qualifying for financial aid and parental income, and I, I don't know the regulations on that, but the law schools will tell you if you call their financial aid office. You should never pay anyone for financial aid advice. Scholarship advice, but not financial aid advice. Great question. Um, Doing an addendum about multiple LSAT scores, uh, should you always do it? No, you shouldn't always do it. Um, You know, if you got two scores in the same score band, a three-point band, I'd leave it alone, to be honest. Except if what you're trying to show is that you have a history of um, poor performance on standardized tests and those scores are in line with your SAT score and you're using them to craft an argument. But you don't necessarily... I have a lot of these examples in my book of different reasons to write an LSAT addendum. But no, you shouldn't necessarily add more junk in your application. Okay, You should have a reason to add more junk in your application. If your LSAT score went up six points, something really significant, I think, you know saying additional prep or I was working the first time I took it or what have you or I made a bad decision not cancel but made a better decision the second time and exercised good judgment you know what that kind of argument sure but um, I think addenda are really overused I actually had someone submit an addendum to re- for me to review where he was telling me that his third semester of college grades weren't great because he ha- his pet died and I'm looking at his transcripts, and I'm thinking, okay, they dipped to, like, a 3.3 from a 3.6, but, like, really? Like, you know what? Why point that junk out? Like, you know, just let, let it go. You've got to see in calculus, you know, when you start college. 
why point that out? Like, let it go. Let it go. So, all right, I'm going to let you guys learn about LSAT. Thank you for having me. Um, I, <laughs> I have, um, I'm very easy to contact. Like Nathan, everything on my website is my cell phone number. I've got, um, I'm going to leave some business cards at the end there. Not that anyone uses business cards anymore, but I'll leave them at the end of the table there where I was sitting so you can grab them on your way out later. I welcome you to email me, call me, Facebook me, whatever you prefer. Okay? I'll hang out if I can have some water first. Then I'll hang out.